Britt Ray is the author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. She is a writer and broadcaster researching the emotional and psychological impacts of the climate crisis. Born and raised in Toronto, Canada, she is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where she investigates the mental health consequences of ecological disruption. She holds a PhD in science communication from the University of Copenhagen. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, and Globe and Mail, among other publications. She has hosted several podcasts, radio and TV programs with the BBC and CBC, is a TED resident, and writes Gen Dread, a newsletter about staying sane in the climate crisis. Britt Ray, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having me. So your book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, you wrote this working your way through, would you characterize it as an existential crisis? Sure. I think that's fair. You changed your career direction. You were questioning whether it was ethical or right to bring a child into the world. Just set it up, the writing of this book and why it was important for you to work through these issues and to share that with others. Oh, sure. So I have a background in conservation biology and have been a science communicator for well over a decade and a half now. And of course, doing that work, you're confronted with climate environmental reports and studies, which were a consistent part of my emotional baseline, just being aware of the fact that this is not all going well, which every now and then would make me feel low for sure in a way that was quite noticeable, but it became much more poignant in my life in 2017, when my partner and I started considering whether or not to have a kid. And I hadn't connected the reproductive part of life to the climate crisis. And all of a sudden, this topic was the only thing I could really think about because it became such a dilemma for me personally as to whether or not I felt comfortable having a child, given what the science says about where we're headed and what the lack of historical action means for the future of any child born today, even one with privilege and protection from its parental outset. So that then, you know, eco-anxiety and climate anxiety and eco-grief in these terms, we now have as kind of household items that people uh, are familiar with, that we have lots of journalism around, which has especially emerged in the last three years or so. But at that time, I didn't have words to describe what I was feeling, and I felt very deviant for even questioning whether or not it was okay to have kids in the climate crisis. I didn't really see it reflected. I figured, okay, this is probably me getting a little bit loopy here, and I ought to do something to bring more perspective into my line of view. And that started me on a research project looking at the psychological impacts of the climate crisis writ large beyond just the reproductive angle. But That was my on-ramp. And I very quickly discovered, oh, I'm not alone in these concerns and fears is actually a very active underground conversation of many people my age, millennials and younger, Gen Z, feeling the same. And it just hadn't risen to the surface as a topic that we knew much about. There weren't studies on it at the time. Much has changed since 2017. We now have a variety of studies, lots of statistics to show us that indeed this is very prevalent in the minds of many young people around the world. We've had celebrities and politicians bolster the legitimacy of these concerns. And my colleagues and I did a global study of 10,000 16 to 25 year olds around the world in low middle high income settings. 39%, for instance, told us that they're hesitant to have kids because of the climate crisis. So all of that was kind of head spinning to see how quickly it changed. But by then, 
I was much more interested in the wider psychological impacts of the climate crisis that I was learning about through my research for this book, Generation Dread, which came out pretty recently, but I've been working on for a number of years, gathering more insights and data about not only what the mental health impacts are of the climate crisis, whether we're talking acute trauma and disasters, knock-on effects of you know migration crises and things like this, but also in addition to the eco-anxiety that I'm talking about, what we can do as a mental health field to respond to it and where the interventions lie and how we need to reform our professional memberships to really serve this. And so I discovered that many mental health professionals feel woefully unprepared for dealing with the scope of psychic damage that the climate crisis is causing. And that was my kind of invitation, so to speak, to get involved beyond journalism and to reskill. You know, I had finished my PhD recently in a totally different subject. And then I spent a couple of years at my kitchen table studying up, interviewing everyone I could of relevance to the topic and reading as many books and papers so that I could eventually reorient my academic research towards supporting young people with the mental health burden that the climate crisis puts on them, developing supportive interventions, things like that. We know that young people are extremely distressed as a generation compared to older generations about the climate crisis. And so that's really where my focus is. And eventually I was able to make the shift. And now I work at Stanford University doing that research. So really, it started as a personal dilemma, and then it broadened out into this commitment in a new way through my professional activities. Yeah. Yes. Uh, governments around the world have failed the youth of today. Uh, the Gen Zs and the millennials we mentor are deeply concerned about the health of our oceans, ecosystems, and the welfare and biodiversity of the planet. And, you know, they've had to put themselves into the narrative and become the story in order just to cope with the global challenges that we're all currently facing. And so, you know, I think one of the ways to alleviate stress is by supporting climate action and contributing to the climate conversation, like what you've turned to doing, because it is a dilemma. We could say climate change is not just an environmental crisis, it's a human crisis. And, you know, so often we feel like we have to take care of the planet. We have to focus all our energies on that. Um, we don't have time to take care of ourselves. And so in your book, you're saying that we really need to take that time for ourselves because it motivates and energizes us for what we need to do in the world. And we should say that the full title of your book is Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. That's right. It's really, it's key that we can help alleviate some of the psychological distress and things that can produce negative mental health outcomes through interventions that specifically address that. But crucially, in a crisis that is escalating, we need to be able to get at the root problem. We need to be able to foment our ability to take climate action, to mitigate more harms and adapt well to the harms that are baked in. So that means that action taking, agency, self-efficacy, these elements of who we are, which are not just in all of us, they need to be built and cultivated and supported is part of any mental health response package in the climate crisis that we can't just self-soothe as the planet fern, so to speak. That's not really going to do anything to increase our ability to thrive and flourish in the long run. We need to pair the support and the emotional coping with the ability to help produce the change that we want to see in the world. So that's where the meaning and the purpose comes in and finding ways of taking action that are really authentic to each individual that will stick because it speaks to their passions and joys and what gives them satisfaction and what makes them feel really alive. 
is a is an inquiry process that a person can go on and alongside what skills they might have to offer to find ways to connect rather than just assume this crisis is so big, we can't do anything. I don't know where to start. I don't want to be an activist who hits the street with a placard, for instance. It's not my style. That's fine. It doesn't need to be the action. There's so many creative ways in which we can approach this. And so really breaking the problem down into smaller key items is really important. And that can be moved towards from a really powerful and rooted place when it comes to connecting with the distress. Like climate anxiety, for instance, there's a variety of studies that show us, yes, ways in which it can impair functioning and it can reduce well-being, but it can also be a practical form of anxiety that moves people towards more climate action and pro-environmental change making. So how can we harness this distress as a kind of super fuel for making change at the same time as we preserve well-being? You know, it's not a medical cure that we're looking for because it's not a pathology. The intervention is climate action alongside bigger communities of care and support. So all of that can outline key pillars of what wisdom traditions have always told us going back thousands of years are important for humans to flourish. You know, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, being able to contribute to something greater than ourselves can be part of the well-being toolkit when that is rooted in these different kinds of actions that we need. And for me personally, I never felt I could take much time out to have that self-care, to take that bit of time that you might be applying to some other activities, which is the end goal. I think we always have to find something that gives us hope and connects us to our shared humanity. I've got a lot of hope in the last year. I mean, there's, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act and there are people like Bertrand Picard and what he and the Solar Impulse Foundation are doing, offering 1,400 independently assessed profitable solutions. And I'm encouraged by the young generations tackling climate issues head on with passion because we have the tools now to meet these challenges and transition from fossil fuels to green energy and achieve uh, carbon neutrality and just seeing the ongoing increase in actionable solutions. You know, it does give me hope. These are the kind of things that I cling to. Of course, there's the IPCC reports, which are always worrying, but I mean, we're seeing ways for cities to lead the way and there's open source systems such as what Audrey Tang, a Taiwanese Minister of Digital Affairs does, offering citizens pathways to be active participants in the legislation and climate solutions. So these are things that give me hope, but what gives you hope? I think the general waking up that I'm seeing around me in so many different parts of society, people from all walks, understanding that this is here, it's not a future threat, it's active now, we need to get smart about addressing it. And there's a deep approach that, you know, we've just been through the great resignation, for instance, with COVID, where a lot of people are leaving their jobs. But similarly, a lot of people are also asking themselves, how can I be of service? What can I do at this time? How am I going to be? And, you know, the more climate job boards and networking communities and sites of bringing people together to do that work of figuring out how they're going to go on their climate journey while infusing it with a sense of joy, with a sense of how can we make this fun, right? How can we reshift so it is not just focusing on the negative, but really focusing on what we want to be building and what is abundant and the better life that we're working towards. All of that has been popping off a lot. <laughs> and that gives me an honest sense of hope. You know, I, I see that reflected. I see real people doing real things and changes in their life. And I feel it within myself. And all of those things are just great. It's possible to have high well-being, high meaning, high engagement with things that matter and that are purposeful 
and ways of cultivating, nourishing emotions around all of those things in an increasingly turbulent world. We can do that. So even as the systems around us change, if water becoming more scarce, let's say, or food scarcity, climate disasters ramping up and migration crises, there are lots of things that we can do within ourselves to stretch our capacity to be caring and continue taking action for the present moment rightness of it, which improves our overall well-being. So all of those things have me feeling hopeful. You know, it's a complicated kind of hope. It's an act of hope or a radical hope. It's not a kind of just sit back and feel that things are going to get better and hope that other people are going to solve it kind of hope. That doesn't apply here. So I understand in your book, Generation Dread, you talk a lot about the unequal impacts of the climate crisis. And you mentioned earlier compassion. So why aren't more people concerned about the climate crisis for vulnerable populations like the Pacific Islands or economically disadvantaged populations? Is there a lack of empathy? Is it ignorance? Is it something else? I think there's many things. I think proximity is a huge issue. When people are not proximate physically, don't have relationships with people who are perhaps, you know, on the other side of the world from them, look different from them, practice a different religion from them. There are all kinds of cognitive blinders that we can have on or limitations rather that force a, a function of disconnection. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's very easy for it to be that way let alone the issue of increasing anxieties in a world that is becoming more terse. <laughs> People are aware that things are destabilizing and there are often kind of self-protective instincts that can set in where folks turn inwards to think about what I need. And, and there's lots of psychology to show that we are often more compassionate and caring and protective towards others who are in our tribe, you know, whatever that looks like. And so these things really work against us at global scale for being able to band together as a larger human whole that needs to understand we are going to improve the outcomes based on how connected we are to one another and how much we are fighting the climate crisis, aka also the fossil fuel industries. So there's a lot of defenses that we have evolved to have, which trip us up. A lot of people find it very difficult to sit with discomfort, we, you know, and we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, which is a big ask for a lot of people because we'd much rather stick our head in the sands, turn away, disavow the tough reality and find soft forms of denial that protect us from anxiety and pain. But we're doing that in the climate crisis writ large at the expense of our future well-being in a really large sense. So we need to have conversations about that, psychoeducation, understanding how we can get tripped up unconsciously when we turn away consistently and try to suppress what is scary or difficult, when actually we can take it on and we can learn to sit with it and learn from it and move productively with it. It's not that as many people think the difficult feelings are going to overrun us and trap us in despair and then define who we are. Rather, we can tolerate uncertainty and, and hardship and the emotions that come with it productively when we give it space. And so all of that is kind of the toolkit of emotional intelligence building. And those are the kinds of practices that can help us become more compassionate when we can work on those things within ourselves and the psychology that trips us up. But it's not automatic for a lot of us. So there are some, some real challenges there in terms of how we can do that. So you mentioned a lot about mental defenses to threats to feel more comforting, things like that. A common mental disconnect I see is a lot of people feel as though they're separate from the environment or outside of it. 
Do you think this plays a role in finding solutions to the climate crisis? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that the intense hyper-individualism that many of us, particularly in industrialized Western nations, have been steeped in over our lives in recent history, teaches us that we are not only not connected to one another and dependent on one another within our communities, but that we are not part of a greater web of life in the more than human world, which of course we are. And the dominance model that puts humans at the top of the pyramid rather than at some place in an interconnected web has been extremely damaging for fomenting our sense of continual progress, you know, d- dominion of nature, often dominion of other peoples who, according to socially constructed hierarchies, have been oppressed from historically marginal logics. And so all of this really goes against getting at the root of what caused this crisis, which relate back to colonialism and extraction from rampant industrialism, which has also, of course, been connected to in this hyper kind of consumerist neoliberal day that we experience in terms of our policies and why there's actually loneliness has emerged as a public health epidemic. And many people console that kind of space within themselves that hurts with material consumption rather than fostering deeper connections in it, which is healthier for overall physical and mental health. I mean, we've just been kind of floating around for a long time in a miasma of low meaning. I won't say meaninglessness, but not tapping into our full potential for meaning. And it's coming back to bite us in a variety of ways by keeping concealed often what the roots of the climate crisis are, how they connect to these bigger oppressive systems in which we're living. And then, you know, we need to see that in order to talk about it and shift it. But interconnection is key and being able to shift away from seeing nature just as a resource to take from, but really something to revere and respect and understand in a mutualistic way why it is sacred, why it is life-giving. And obviously, Indigenous communities have been living in similar ways to this throughout time and immemorial, having sustainable, mutualistic relationships with nature compared to the dominant society. And there's a lot to be learned from that kind of partnership model based on interconnection rather than continuing on in this kind of, what's the word that I'm looking for? Essentially, the way extractivist. Yes, again, and the ways in which we've continued to pollute the planet to ecological overshoot. We're at an alarming period of decline. We can't continue doing the same things in order to solve the crisis. We need to think boldly and apply different ways of being. So I think that what you're getting at is the main the main shift from which many good things could come. So speaking of shifts, and you discussed consumerism, numbing ourselves to the realities and the many distractions, I don't know how maybe considering or incorporating elements of degrowth might be one model of solutions, but you know, many have said that that's unrealistic to bring everyone on board a degrowth model. We have to incentivize another means. But- yeah, I am very interested in degrowth economics. I don't know a lot about it. I've only done my cursory reading, you know, listening to people like Jason Hickel and others who have done a lot of considerable work to demonstrate why degrowth makes sense for our ecological overshoot problem and the ways that it can help solve the harms resulting from centuries of imperialism and colonialism and ways in which the global South is suffering at the hands of global North carbon intensive lifestyles. And all of that seems really fruitful. It's like, yes, we need all solutions on the table. Consider that rigorously. We clearly need to stop optimizing for GDP as the kind of growth 
that we're interested in only. <laughs> growth that we need to measure and focus on is growth of well-being, community, health, things that matter to survival. What does a certain corporation's increased profit matter if their supply chain is wiped out in five years from a climate disaster? <laughs> You know, we need to be really tackling into the core concepts of what allow us to thrive and flourish, let alone survive and subsist, and bake that into the ways in which we're orienting our economic model. So I think, you know, believe that there's another kind of economic model, which isn't called degrowth. It's something like sustenance or sustainability economics, which is close. All of it is really key to explore. And I believe this other model, which I haven't said correctly yet, was written into the last IPCC report as something to consider, which is powerful, you know, mainstreaming and validating the fact that this current economic model is, is at the source of what's continuing the harm, the perpetuation of it, and that we need to consider other ways of bending the curves within planetary boundaries. Yes, we really appreciate those bolder solutions that were usually sidelined or maybe just alluded to vaguely and to see, you know, statements by the UN Secretary General citing that we need to save the planet and how we need to have a windfall tax on polluters and the fossil fuel industry. I want to know what that looks like, but it's nice to hear it said out loud and boldly. Yes, yes. I mean, he does not mince words. <laughs> the UN Secretary General, each speech is just more punch packing than the last. <laughs> and this recent one from the UN General Assembly this week did not disappoint. So yeah, I agree. Brit Ray's insights on the mental health impacts of the climate crisis and its impacts on more vulnerable populations is something I greatly appreciate. As an environmental policy major, I often hear a lot about these unequal impacts, both mental and physical, and it's great to hear someone with such great understanding and knowledge informing the public of these effects. One of my favorite analogies for our contemporary climate issue is that we are all in the same storm, but we do not all share the same boat. This analogy applies to many different facets of climate change, one of the most important being its inequitable impacts on vulnerable populations. Some of these at-risk populations include those in low-lying geographic areas, economically disadvantaged groups, communities of color, and those with pre-existing medical conditions. As the planet continues to warm and our ice caps melt, those in areas such as the Pacific Islands are facing the very real threat of having their homes submerged underwater as sea levels continue to rise. Economically disadvantaged populations do not have the luxury of relocating to different areas or using substantial amounts of air conditioning to combat things such as excessive heat or more extreme weather conditions. Due to centuries of structural inequalities and systemic racism leading to less social and economic capital, communities of color are much more likely to reside in areas that will face harsher impacts associated with the climate crisis. People with pre-existing medical conditions are far more likely to be harshly impacted by the warming of the planet as things such as disease, drastic weather, and poor air quality become more prominent. In a time where the threats of the climate crisis are very serious, I believe it is important to keep in mind how the degree of these threats have a vast range. In the midst of most crises, including this one, the ideas of compassion and empathy are extremely important as both the physical and mental impacts of climate change are different for everyone. Not only will these vulnerable populations face more physical threats, but they will also face more mental difficulties as their potential for harm is often far greater. When a crisis like this arises, I urge everyone to be aware of the variation in harm and to act kindly, whether that means lessening your own carbon footprint, taking climate action through lobbying for policy change, or simply being empathetic and realizing the risks to others may outweigh your own. As stated earlier, we are all in the same storm, but we do not all share the same boat. However, 
I believe this is a storm that we truly can weather. One way to begin doing this is to welcome others into your boat while also helping them to bolster and repair their own. I believe the use of empathy, compassion, and kindness is a great place to start. Now, back to the interview. So I was very interested in this other career that you've also left behind because it's synthetic biology and it's quite a turn, but we know that that can have positive implications for our conservation. Is it something that you might reabsorb or you're going to completely focus on the emotional effects of climate change now? The field that I'm in now is just exploding. There's so much going on that I do not have enough hours in the day really to diversify. <laughs> I mean, on the research side, in terms of filling in missing evidence gaps, there's just tons of collaborations and, you know, people are wanting to fund this and institutes are opening and things of that nature to help address that empirical base of knowledge that we need to help inform better policy. And then there's also the need for identified interventions that can really help people with their mental health crises. Because the thing is, in an increasingly traumatized world, we can't have increasingly traumatized people take on the life-saving protections that are now required in terms of shifting our energy economy and putting all the people protecting and environment protecting policies in place. All of that requires healthy populations and people contributing from our various diverse sectors. And so it really is an all-hands-on-deck moment. While we can still get ahead of the ball and implement preventive approaches and solutions and community-building initiatives that will help reduce distress and mental health disorders when bad things do happen, including increasing climate disasters and, you know, heat waves and things like that. So that's why I'm focusing on it now. It certainly feels a lot busier than my former field did. And um, yeah, I just got a faculty position to lead an initiative on climate and mental health. So that kind of cements the answer, <laughs> which is that I'll be doing that. And this study you and your colleagues did of over 10,000 people, how does the language change with different regions addressing it as climate-related emotional distress? The general terms that have arisen are things like climate anxiety, eco-anxiety, ecological grief, Eco-anxiety has been defined by the American Psychological Association as the chronic fear of environmental doom. Climate would be a climate-specific form and not just all environmental problems informed version of that kind of anxiety. But really, when we dig into it, there's a general consensus in the field that it's not just anxiety. It's a variety of co-occurring emotions that are challenging that a person can feel when confronting the climate crisis. So sadness, anger, powerlessness, helplessness, grief, sometimes guilt those kinds of things, which can be just tough to deal with. In our study that you mentioned, we were looking at climate anxiety in 10,000 young people around the world, 16 to 25 year olds in 10 countries across low, middle, high income settings. And 45% of the global respondents of these young people said that their climate anxiety is impairing their daily functioning. So concentrating, eating, going to school, going to work, playing, having fun, that kind of thing. They had very negative thoughts. 75% of the people around the world said that the future is frightening. 56% said that they feel humanity is doomed. And 39% said that they're hesitant to have their own kids. So because of all that, we know that if we're talking in Nigeria, India, Philippines, Canada, and UK, US, Australia, Finland, and some other countries, we're looking across really diverse scenarios uh, in terms of the 
national income and what that means for their ability to adapt and respond to climate threats and also their exposure already to climate hazards and disasters that are going on. So for that global aggregate to be that high, it's pretty striking. And then when you really dig into the most affected and underserved countries on this issue, so those with lower level economies and more climate disasters, you see the distress shooting through the roof. More around 74% of the young people saying that it's impairing functioning, for instance. So it's a severe health equity issue, thinking about what it means to live with the psychological impacts of the climate crisis. And then also pointing out who's deserving, who needs the most attention and support at this time, rather than just kind of wasting all the attention and resources on In this case, it would be young people in industrialized nations who are suffering as well, but not at the rates of lower income nations with more climate disasters. And of course, those in higher income settings uh, really outline the injustice of this are in the places that are making the climate crisis worse with their carbon intensive lifestyles. So I think we need to have that intersectional approach in any investigation of whether it's climate anxiety or if we're talking more generally about some type of climate distress that encompasses all these different emotions. And I think let's talk in a few years and see how we're measuring these things because these constructs are emerging. We have a climate anxiety scale. We have an eco-anxiety scale. We have a climate worry scale. Things that researchers have developed and are testing out in populations. But it's not yet clear which ones are going to end up being the most valid, psychometrically valid would be the jargon for that. And in terms of really accurately measuring what we're talking about and how much some of these constructs are overlapping and where they're different. It's a bit of a complicated and messy space. There's lots of new terms that are emerging and we'll have to see which ones end up being most useful and helpful so that we can better help people. And you discuss building resilience and healthy communities are those who will help each other and will work together. So can you just describe some of the tools that are being created and what does that look like, the healthy communities around climate crisis? Healthy communities around the climate crisis are people working together where they live, increasing their social connections, their social trust, their ability to achieve shared goals, otherwise known as social capital, identifying things that they might need to mitigate in their community when it comes to climate or adapt to. So protection measures. Are there communities that are exposed to toxic wildfire smoke for many days of the year? And can they come together and work on a program to get a, with some municipal support and education opportunities, let's say, the ability to build clean, safe rooms so that people can go there and safe havens on those toxic days, especially in low-income communities, which who might not be able to get away. Are there certain care systems that can be set up to better address the needs of vulnerable individuals like the elderly or disabled people, for instance, in in a heat wave? Are there ways in which a community wants to work on waste management or all these things that don't actually get thought of as mental health work? But when we look at the research, we know that these kinds of community building initiatives again and again can build resilience and emotional sustenance and support and trust in these things that do improve people's well-being over time and create the conditions whereby they can really rebuild faster and more effectively together when bad things, including a climate disaster, happen. So it's having a more broad-based social model of mental health rather than thinking about mental health in a climate crisis and, you know, health overall 
being relegated only to the one-on-one biomedical narrow model, but really ways of shifting the bulk of that care and health protection to the places where we live, to our community-based organizations, to our schools. There's a lot of inspiring work from the field of global mental health, which has been focused on how to get care into low-resource settings that don't have enough professionals to reach everyone in need, which is rife with ideas about how to do that. Task shifting and task sharing models, for instance, where you don't actually need to require a top-down approach from a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but lay people in the community are trained to deploy supportive interventions to people who they live amongst who need help, even though they don't have any former medical or psychological expertise. And they can do it in a casual, trusted way that actually increases the effectiveness, sometimes more than primary care. So those kinds of things are accessible, they're scalable, available. And um, I mean, that's an element of what it means to have a healthy community in the climate crisis. But of course, it's action taking is really key all the way through agency and action, which can look like many things. So you mentioned a lot about these solutions. And as the climate crisis gets worse, you often see more extreme solutions, almost even dystopian. You have these floating cities that are ideas, uh, these shelters, and even people colonizing entirely new planets. Do you think these play a role in people's climate anxiety because they're so extreme in large scale? And do you think it's important to keep mental health concerns in mind when you are doing these solutions and making these? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. Does reading about billionaires building survival bunkers in New Zealand for the imagined apocalypse they're living in in their mind raise the general climate anxiety of those who are stressed out about the crisis? Perhaps I imagine that that would be an an informing element of the story one is telling themselves about how the future is going to go, which can provoke anxiety for sure. I haven't seen that question asked on any survey. I don't think there's research around it, but it's interesting. Or yeah, does reckoning with Elon Musk's plans to make humans, a very select small group of humans, interplanetary because this planet isn't going to be uh, livable in some future that he's imagining uh, stress people out. I would imagine for some it does beyond the entertainment effect or uh, kind of frustrations that it raises in people about inequality. These extreme scenarios are kind of fantasies in which people are offloading their own distress about what's going on and, and coming to some kind of constructive response for themselves and people like them. But again, it's kind of that tribal aspect that we were talking about. It's paying attention to one's own rather than taking the more communitarian approach which is about creating communities of care and accessible ways of coming together and working in this period that we're in now where all the tough work is required of us. You know, despite what the doom and gloom narratives say about it being too late, it's not too late. We have a lot of capacity to prevent harm that will otherwise come. And we need to work together and have the compassion and put those protections in place and change the policies and all the rest of it. So the distraction that some people can sense when certain very well-resourced individuals, billionaires and so on, are kind of checking out of that duty and responsibility and doing things more privately just is the opposite direction in which we need to go for that way of helping each other save each other, save ourselves, so to speak. Which, yeah, it might then just stoke people to think, okay, it's going to be dog-eat-dog out there and inequality is just going to continue to widen and... You know, those who are the most marginalized are going to continue to be trampled on in unequal ways. And that can provoke all kinds of 
anxiety about the future too. So yeah, interesting point. I, I would like to see if anyone ever researches that. And, you know, I think beyond the emotional care, we're living in the century of the city and we hear a lot about creating smart cities, smart buildings, smart thinking, but most people don't know when it comes to housing or transport or heat waves and the storm surges. So if moving beyond the emotional care, you know, what do you envisage for our cities and what are some of those rapid cutting edge transitions that need to take place? Oh, well, a much greater investment in public transport infrastructure is enormous with about 40% of our pollution in, in cities, carbon pollution in cities coming from cars and transportation that really needs to be focused on and prioritized. And of course, electrifying everything that we can, both in that sector and beyond, including in our buildings. I believe 60% of our carbon pollution in cities roughly is coming from buildings and those that are not built in smart kind of climate secure ways. How can we shift off of natural gas and towards heat pumps that can heat and cool our homes at the same time, for instance, that are electric? These are big key questions that many people are already creating, you know, the pathways of change on that we need to find ways of strengthening and making affordable and having with the everyday homeowner and renter be able to tap into for sure. And you are a young mother now, and well, it's maybe too early to start having these talks about climate change and the future. But as you think about the future, how will you prepare your child for the future? And what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Yeah, we're going to certainly have an evolving learning journey there together in our family. But it starts with engendering the kind of partnership model that we were talking about earlier, like bringing our kid out into nature, allowing him to foster that sense of connection and love for natural landscapes, ecosystems, species, so that there's a an interest in protective measures and mutually supportive relationships to nature growing up. I think that's really important, as well as listening when he's ready to talk about it and tells me how he's feeling be able to create space for that and attend to the emotions if they're distressing or challenging there's all kinds of approaches for supporting young people to deal with you know nervous system reactions and ways of thinking about the future to balance hope and fear that i think will be really key but not introducing it until he's ready and not doing it too young because we don't want to unduly stress a young person who's not completed the development of their brain to think about such overwhelming problems. But we do live in a culture in which it's going to come in through osmosis at some point uh, because we're living in it. And so being just really attentive and validating and listening and engendering a culture of action taking in our lives, in our family, activism. And, you know, young people need to understand that there are people around them who are supporting them, who are validating how important this is, and who are working alongside them to help them navigate the future and prepare in resilience-building ways uh, for the massive changes that are underway. So a lot of it is about that relationality, creating conditions of solidarity that bring a sense of stability and security, even though there's a lot of uncertainty about what the impacts will be and how they're going to affect us each and every one of us in the decades ahead, there needs to, amidst all that uncertainty, be other things that can undergird a child and make them feel held, safe, secure, and like they belong to a protective community that's thinking and feeling with them through this. So yeah, all of those are, 
I think, really important. And then just generally doing everything you can as a parent to get us off of fossil fuels. <laughs> yes. And we should say we focused a little bit about looking despair and the climate crisis in the eye and making sure that, you know, we're addressing our emotional needs. But your book you know, it also helps us find beauty and connection in that despair. So there's a lot of reasons for hope. And it's really, we wouldn't have this distress, as you say, unless we really cared. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you got that message out of the way that the book looks at despair, because that's exactly right. It's not a, it's not a unidimensional thing. There are many shades to this and it can be a gateway to harnessing many nourishing and quote unquote, positive emotions, actually, by tapping into greater connection and love and understanding the care that this sprouts from and what we can do and how we can exercise our talents and abilities and orient ourselves to the world at this time, which brings out that meaning and purpose, which we know are core elements of human flourishing. So yeah, it's more complicated than meets the eye. Exactly. We often feel this is how it is, but you don't have to accept something that you think is immoral or unethical. You can intervene. You can fight back. We just need more citizen engagement and a diversity of voices as we face the continuing eco-crisis, because the one thing we can't do is nothing. Well, thank you, Britt Ray, for helping us find purpose in an age of climate crisis, for your writing that bears witness and inspires us to make the world a better place for future generations, deepening our understanding of eco-anxiety, helping us to heal and see into our collective future and what we can do to cope with the crisis emotionally and constructively. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Cade Cornelius with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Cade Cornelius. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.